I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed on mats. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. Guys, welcome back to the Ansons podcast. Today, we have an awesome conversation for you that we had with Hank Shaw who has had a journey from being a political writer into being a writer on food and foraging, hunting, gathering. Obviously, we love that trajectory alone, and that could be like a, a haiku for us, leaving politics and entering hunting. But uh, yeah, we, we dive pretty deep here. Hank Shaw, my goodness, been one of my sort of culinary heroes for a long time. So some you'll hear some of the excitement come out in this episode. His book on butchering and cooking big game animals. Buck Buck Moose is one of the books I recommend most often, especially to other hunters. But his expertise across hunting disciplines and across culinary disciplines is pretty impressive. This is what he has spent his life doing. So we're going to cover everything from how to engage an environment through hunting on into extremely helpful specifics. So even if you're not a hunter, and the first part of the episode is difficult for you, stay in there. Because when we get to cooking techniques, these are the 30 minutes that are going to most elevate your kitchen for the lowest price of admission, because here it is, right in your podcast inbox. Enjoy it, you guys. Hank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for giving us some of your time today. Thanks for having me on. First thing, you're obviously you know, a skilled hunter, forager, chef, as we are going to get into in some depth today. But for 19 years, you were a political reporter and writer. How on earth did that happen? Well, I, I, well first, it was 18 years. I don't know why. So people start to write 19 years, and it's just sort of taken a life of its own, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save myself that one year of sanity. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. How did that happen? I mean, we're all essentially the sum of all of our choices. And when I started uh, as a journalist, you know, back in the, really the, the dawn of the 90s, um, this is what I was good at. And I started covering local politics and worked my way all the way up to covering the presidency. To be clear, I never was a White House reporter, but I, uh, I covered two presidential election campaigns. It just happens. You know, I didn't wake up some morning and say, I'm going to cover Congress or whatever that it just sort of happens and you get good at it thing that was attractive to me about it when I started which should resonate uh, for people listening to this was that the essence of good politics and, and what was interesting as a journalist about politics was um, compromise and debate so one thing that a legislature or the halls of Congress at least used to do was there would be a problem so for example a farm bill I covered several farm bills we need to, you know, reauthorize the farm bill and tinker with it in this way and that way and the other way. And so there'd be people from all different states and all different backgrounds and all different politics, and they would come together to solve a problem. 
and how that problem would be solved was inherently interesting because not everybody would get everything they wanted and and there's lots of backroom deals and all that sort of thing and it would be very very interesting and uh, over time that morphed with the the, the climate that you, we have now instead of people working with each other it became people shouting past each other and that i don't really care what your politics are that's inherently boring as a journalist so if there's just people not actually doing anything just shouting there's no interest in that so that's that's why it became very easy to leave it um in the in the uh, around 2008 is when i when i finally left was it like a, an immediate shift for you into the world of writing these these books on foraging and on how to use this wild game that you've harvested like was that a natural step or was there something some lag time between those of going you know i've got this experience as a as a writer i think there's a need here for uh just a better approach to this whole world like what was it what was it that drew you into that whole choice well i had been a forager and a and an angler my entire life and i'd worked as a commercial fisherman uh here and there and in fact i, I just got a chance to work the deck again this past summer in in uh, Alaska. So I'm still doing it. That part had come to me naturally. And uh, I was inspired by a very famous old New York Times reporter named Johnny Apple. Uh, his byline was R.W. Apple, but everybody called him Johnny. And Johnny Apple had done what I did. So I consider myself a, a poor man's Johnny Apple in the sense that he had covered politics for decades and then shifted to food. There's a great line in that movie, Julia and Julia, where no matter what your day is, no matter how many people are yelling at you or lying to you or, or treating you poorly, at the end of the day, if you make a souffle correctly, it will rise. Food follows rules and food is pure and it is something that you can depend on. That helped keep me sane while I was still a reporter. So I started to do some food writing even while I was still mainly a political reporter. And then when I stopped writing politics, it, it, this, it just sort of took over and, and, and snowballed because I had started hunting uh, when I was 30. That had kind of added to the mix. And I realized very quickly that some of the greatest cooking in the history of the Western world, and, and really beyond that, if you look closely, had to do with wild game. And so that was an, uh, an opportunity for, for me to really explore and become a student of it and, and ultimately get pretty good at it. Yeah, you write about this quest for what you call honest food. It's sort of the core of this progression of uh, pretty excellent books that you've produced in the peripheral writing you do. Do you have like a working de definition of honest food and how a person can kind of begin to frame the conversation we're really having here about intentionally deeply engaging these craft products to make some pretty exceptional plates. I do. Um, and it's, to, I want to be very clear that I am not necessarily just talking about wild foods. Um, I, I find it extraordinarily important for us to include wild food of some way, shape, or form into our lives right now, but we can get into that in a bit. But honest food is a reaction to industrial food. It's a reaction to food deserts, whether they're in the city or they're in farm country, because I don't know how much time you spent in farm country, but um, quite often the food that people actually eat 
in the areas in which they make the actual food is is disconnected profoundly. Hmm. And there are so many stories of just bad practices or, you know, with salmonella and meat and, and people getting food poisoning from spinach and all of that stuff is caused by the industrial food system. And, and so what I'm talking about is to take more control over what you feed yourself and your family. You can do that through wild food in all its forms. That's, that's the way I've chosen. But, you know, farmer's markets where you can talk to your farmer. There are uh, community-supported agriculture programs for where farmers uh, who are raising meat and fish. You know, uh, in fact, we do something like that with um, salmon in Alaska where you can buy, you know, a share of what the harvest is. And there are ways to go about feeding yourself and your family that they're just cleaner. You know, gardening is a huge piece of that. You know, I don't allow any plant to live on my, on my ground. You know, obviously there's, there's grass and stuff, but not much. Everything I've planted on my, on my own yard is edible in some way, shape or form. So that's not hard to do, you know, instead of planting, say a pretty flower that is useless, you can plant a pretty flower that you can eat and go on and on and on, you know, fruit trees or nut trees, or, you know, I'd live in a very dry place. So I've got cactus in one part of my yard and, and there's, you know, you can eat nopales or you could eat prickly pear fruit or you could eat choya buds. And so there, there's this way that you can go about feeding yourself and by extension, everybody else that you feed that allows you to opt out of some of the cruelties that are inherent in industrial agriculture, whether they're to human farm workers or to the animals that we eat. And, you know, it's very difficult to completely opt out of it because just, it's just the world we live in, but every little bit helps. It's interesting because you're talking about some pretty big, maybe even paradigm shifting and, on the one hand, there's sort of nothing like a demonstration. One of the ways that we have done that and continue to do that with you know the rest of the staff here is earlier this summer, we drove out to a farm, bought a great Tamworth hog, you know, butchered the whole thing ourselves, ate basically all of it in one feast, just demonstrating, look at the unbelievable quality of reality, a eh? farmer you can talk to, a pig you can identify, a place with a practice actually fits. It actually fits the landscape. My wife is an amateur forager. We were just up kind of going predominantly ham on rosebuds because, you know, ambitions of rosebud chutney and honeys and whatnot. But in the act of doing this, you kind of start to be just persuaded and I wonder if on the road to shifting into maybe uh, a more nuanced understanding of food and what you're going to grow in your yard what were some of the things that got you moving that direction I think of one line uh, that you wrote in an article which was the world is not a museum nor is it an amusement park I love that. And I want to ask, could you talk more about what you mean 
and how you or someone else would get there to that kind of understanding? There's two fundamental ways to look at the the world around us. And, and it increasingly includes the ecologies of cities as well. But typically we're talking about more wild places, whether they're parks or actual wilderness. There is a school of thought and it's, it's about, it's a little over a hundred year old school of thought where nature is this thing to be preserved in some sort of mythical, pristine state. And nature has never been pristine by our definition really ever because if it wasn't us modifying the landscape it was our hominin predecessors and it was and there were animals prior to us that would un- manipulate the landscape now and that doesn't diminish the fact that modern humans modify the landscape in ways that are that have not yet been seen on the on the earth but we have this thought that there's some piece of it that shouldn't be dicked with for lack of a better term it's a very good and very healthy idea but the problem with that is that it inherently by a definition sets us apart from nature so there's us and then there's nature well that's a false dichotomy we are nature we are part of nature and so the other school of thought is that no we should not you know dick up all of these really beautiful places in the world but nor should we keep ourselves out because the cat's out of the bag anyway. You know, there's no place on planet Earth that you can go that has no human impact. There are places with minimal human impact. So when it comes to how do you do that? How do you manage? I mean, I live in California. So let's say, how do you manage a national forest? You, the national forest is managed in a different way from a park. So a national forest is always going to be a place of many uses. And, and, and that's where the nature is not museum and not an amusement park holds true. There's regulated logging, there's regulated hunting, there's regulated foraging, there's regulated firewood chopping. It, it's a view that we're part of this ecosystem and, and to, it, it, they call it wise use. So in my world, regulated hunting, you know, hunting with seasons and bag limits has never caused an animal to become endangered ever. So it's the North American model of, of wildlife management. I'm specifically talking about North America. So the, the migratory bird treaty was signed in 1918 for 100 years since they banned commercial hunting, we have had a sustainable system that requires management and hunting is a piece of that management, but habitat is a bigger one. So you manage for habitat. And if you have the other view where nature is a museum, you don't do that. You just let things take its course. And the most violent result of that is the fire situation. So the natives in North America, by and large, no matter where you are, used fire as the management tool where they lived, period, end of story. They did it in the plains. They did it in the West Coast. They did it in the east fire they've burned the understory of the forest for 10,000 years so if you look at the uh, accounts of the very first europeans who showed up on the east coast in the 1600s they would talk about being able to drive a carriage you know a horse-drawn carriage through the forest because they were so heavily managed and then if you look at it afterwards you know in the 1800s they talk about the same woods as this wilderness that nobody can get through 
Well, because we thought, oh, well, we should just leave it alone. And this whole just leave it alone thing has caused the vicious wildfires that we're that we're dealing with because it's they're all called ladder fires. So if you've got a fire in a managed forest, it burns through your underbrush and all the trees are like, eh, whatever. It just zips through. Now, if you've got little trees and you've got big bushes and you've got more heat and more fuel, then it burns so hot that it can kill the trees. And that's a perfect example perfect example of how nature as museum is can actually be a literally lethal concept whereas a managed forest yeah we had a forest fire and just zipped through and no harm no foul it's such an important and fundamental concept i was explaining to my wife recently that one of my favorite things when we finally get into fall and the hunting seasons and having a tag in my pocket as often as possible for the various big game species here in Colorado, is that it uh, like alleviates some of the either illusory or enforced separation between us and the places that we actually live in as part of this world, as part of these landscapes and ecosystems. It's so fun, but also like fundamentally good to me to be able to, you know, drive through landscapes where I live all the time, drive through the Colorado mountains, but with an eye on big game animals and the eye on the actual health of the ecosystem and an eye on the grasses that are growing because of the habitat that they provide. It just brings proximity to actually living in a place, which I find doing all kinds of very helpful things for me in my life as a person. Something we've noticed anecdotally is that the hunter's and gatherers in our world tend to be people who are most engaged with the care of the wildlife um, in general, even outside of seasons. And there seems to be this like thing thrown in the face of what I think pop culture did with maybe even as far back as Bambi of hunters are sort of going out there drinking their beer cans and shooting anything that moves that actually, as you are naming the uh, amusement park and museum sort of conflict, there's actually this maturity that comes when you enter into the place. Uh, I don't know how many conversations I've had with friends who they're aware of the issue of the industrial food system, but other than, you know, watching the big documentaries on it, they haven't actually changed much about the way that they buy, cook, shop, all that. I'm curious for you, I love the the language of honest food, um, and I can't separate that from your history as a political writer. That there was there's something there that you're seeking after what is genuine, and I might be projecting after my assumptions of what goes on in the political world. But what was it in your story that made you? shift from, yes, this matters. And I can like understand that to this matters enough that I want other people to hear my voice in its, in its context and to like help others learn how to better handle what's in front of them. I'll kind of roll back to the fact that we're, it's the sum of all of our choices. Um, prior to me doing any of this, I thought I was going to become a college professor. I went to the University of Wisconsin for graduate school to be a history professor, and I ended up leaving with a terminal master's for a number of reasons, not the least of which in that uh, most professors and academics that I had met were deeply divorced from the actual world. 
And I, I had a hard time dealing with that. But that said, when you become a newspaper reporter, if you are a good newspaper reporter, your fundamental calling is to teach people, is to tell people in a daily basis, this is what's going on. This is the truth as we know it today. And that aspect of being able to share knowledge, whatever that knowledge is, you know, uh, an article, this is actually what's going on with the negotiations over the farm bill or whatever. That thought behind it has been with me forever. You know, I mean, I can remember being a teenager and I said, I want to be a history teacher. And so if you look at the 50,000 foot view of what is it, what is it that I do in everything that I've ever done, it's to acquire knowledge, synthesize it, and relate it to other people in a way that is easy to understand. And everything I do is based on that. Hmm. That's a pretty awesome manifesto. Going to some of the particulars of this food career, I've actually kind of been interested in the progression of your books and wondering what the thought was when you wrote about foraging and gathering and fishing and then you wrote Duck, Duck, Goose. You wrote about birds and waterfowl and then larger game in the form of the deer species and now small game. Was there a rationale behind that development before we look oh, at yeah. some of those That's books easy. in particular? Yeah, I did, you don't have to overthink it. Um, so the first book came out in 2011. That's Hunt, Gather, Cook. And that's, that is a book directly based off of the off of Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, which is my website. So I started that website in 2007. And I was very fortunate to be nominated for a James Beard Award in 2009 and 2010. For those of you listening to this who don't know what the James Beard Award is, it's, it's the Oscars of the food world. I mean, it's the most prestigious food award there is. So when I got nominated for that, the second time the phone started ringing and somebody, you know, I, I got book offers and they say, hey, we'd love to do a book based off your blog. And so that's the genesis of Hunt, Gather, Cook. And it's a primer on all things wild. So, I mean, it's if you're listening to this and you're not, you're not already a hunter or you're not already a forager or you're not already an angler, this is a book that will not only give you the initial tools to start doing that, but it will tell you the why you'd want to. I mean, it's sort of the, that was very important to me in that first book. So that's, it's, if you imagine that as sort of the shotgun, it's a scattered approach and it covers a little bit of everything. After that, the plan has always been to do deep dives into individual topics. So the three main areas of hunting are waterfowl and big game and then small game. And so the, the order was, Duck, Duck, Goose was first because at the time, uh, and it continues today, uh, waterfowl is becoming a much more common part of the American diet. You know, it's it's a little bit, little by little, but I mean, that's, you can buy duck now where 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, it would have been much harder to buy duck. There was a, a commercial aspect in, in addition to the hunting aspect to that book. And then deer would is the obvious second one because there's more deer hunters and elk hunters and moose hunters than any other kind of hunting in, in North America by far. And then after that, small game, you know, you, first of all, you want to finish the trilogy. And second of all, the small game is really where my heart lies. I mean, I hunt deer every year and I had ducks all winter long, but the diversity of 
environments, the diversity of the people who chase those these animals, and the diversity in the kitchen of upland birds and small game is profound and not seen in any other style of game. So, I mean, I'm not done. I mean, after this, I'm, uh, I'm working on a book of essays about hunting. And I'm also working on a fish and, a fish and, uh, and seafood cookbook. So basically the rationale has been to do kind of a primer and overall view of what it is that I'm doing and then to hit everything in terms of a very deep dive in, in a way that people have not yet seen. Yeah, it's so good. You, you, the language you used earlier was differentiating honest food and then wild food. Mm-hmm. Um, I Could you give a, a few words to what you try to, to do in your first book of why wild food might matter and why it might be important for people to learn to do these things? Sure. It all starts back with, as a species, think about us. So us, us, you know, you could sit in a room, if there were rooms, 200,000 years ago, and everybody would look like each other. It'd all be like, oh yeah, those are, that's this regular person. We're all regular people. Everybody looks like people. And you may even be able to go back a little bit farther than that. So what I'm saying is modern, anatomically modern homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. And we've been hunters for over a million, you know, back to homo habilis and homo, homo erectus. So the wild world has been our, our world for all but 10,000 years. So you have agriculture starting to become prominent about 12,000 years ago, and it becomes more and more dominant 10,000 years ago. And agriculture every year becomes more and more dominant. And, you know, it's Jacob and Esau, if you've read the, if you've read your Old Testament. Um, Esau was the hunter and Jacob was the farmer and Jacob takes prominence over Esau. And that's just a metaphor for what always happens. And it happens day after day, month after month, millennia after millennia, where we become more and more divorced from where we came from. And as a species, we have never been as divorced from the wild world as we have been right now. There has never been so many people who don't know how to cook. I've had conversations with people who don't know where carrots come from, who don't realize that chicken was a bird. And you can live your whole life in a box if you think about it. You know, you live in a box. You stare at a box at your work. You work in a box if you work in a cubicle. You drive to work in a box that has wheels. And then what you carry in your back pocket is the box upon which our current religion is based. Everybody has a cell phone and everybody worships that cell phone. And so the irony of my current life is that I, I derive my, my livelihood off of boxes. <laughs> I wouldn't be me without the internet. And yet it's, it's incredibly important, incredibly important to put the boxes down and to get out into that wild world that is not a museum. That is, it's the stage upon which our species really came to be the star you know what does it look like if you if you lead a normal life um i'll say right at the start that i'm not asking people to do what i do you know i have not bought meat or fish but a handful of times in 13 years in fact i right before we got on this podcast you know holly and i were plucking birds it's dove season so we had just we had a really good hunt yesterday and we're plucking the birds that's what we do and so what I am asking people to do 
is to find something, whether it's foraging or fishing or angling, is some pursuit of wild food that makes, that floats your boat, you know, find something that really, really lights a fire underneath you in this pursuit of, of wildness. It could be as simple as picking blackberries. It could be as simple as taking your kid fishing or the Labor Day dove hunt or shooting a deer every year. So you have deer venison in the freezer. It, it doesn't have to be a life changing thing. But what that does is if you have that thing or those things, because typically people don't, it's like a potato chip. People don't stop at one wild pursuit. It becomes part of, of who you are and how you live. And it becomes part of your family's DNA. Like when I was growing up, my mom thought it very, very important for us to know the names of the plants that were around us. Think about that for a second. How many plants can you name in your backyard? How many plants can you name as, on your walk to work? Probably not that many. Some people out there are, you know, probably botanists or bird or plant nerds, and they're like, oh, yeah, I know them all. But 99% of the people listening to this are green blind. And by green blind, what we mean is that you just see green. You don't see the individual plants that make up the green. And that's a great example that almost everybody has of being divorced from nature. And, and this is inherently bad. I mean, we've talked about it, you know, a couple minutes ago about how when you're in the that environment as a forager or an angler or, or a hunter, you are deeply concerned about the health of that environment. And non-hunters, really anti-hunters will, will come after us because um, a lot of times I would say a significant minority, somewhere around 40% of all hunters are a member of some sort of a critter club. And what I mean by that, like a, like California waterfowl or quail forever or the Rocky mountain elk federation. So these are groups that you pay to join and the money that they raise is, is they turn around and, and work for habitat. So habitat, let's say California waterfowl, for example, you're a member of Cal waterfowl and they raise money. And what they do is they turn that money into projects where for habitat, wetlands and marshes. And then the, our critics will say, Oh, well, you're just, you know, all you want to do is shoot more ducks. Well, that's not untrue. I mean, we want to shoot ducks for sure. That's one of the reasons why we do this. But the fact of the matter is a healthy marsh is shot by hunters for three months a year. So the other nine months of the year, it's a marsh and everything lives in a marsh. And if you don't have a marsh, you don't have an entire ecosystem. And the vast majority of wetlands that are remaining in the West Coast are related to duck hunting. No duck hunters, no marshes in California. So that's an example of people who are consumptive users. So foragers or anglers or hunters are all consumptive users. They're taking something out of the environment, but they're giving back at the same time. Because when you take something out, you are inherently aware of the fact that you need to give something back in. And if you don't do any of that, you can let the forest go. It's not part of your consciousness. You're green blind. You don't see it. So therefore, if it goes away, you won't even notice. Well, when you're a part of it, you notice. Yeah, the being a part of it and noticing is huge. And you're speaking our language when you talk about people living in boxes, looking at boxes. There's a study that came out this year from the Environmental Protection Agency that the average American spends 93% of their lives indoors, whether between vehicles or work or their homes. And 93% is a staggering amount of your life to live. 
Seriously. in those boxes. So love that as you enter into these environments, they begin to affect change on you. And yeah, and just one thing on that point is a principle that's really helpful that comes from Wendell Berry is when you remove a thing completely from a context and isolate it, more often than not, that thing's capacity for harm increases. The most obvious example being, you know, the refinement of particular dangerous drugs being like that originated inside a system and a situation where it was probably fine, but removing it, something happens and just going, do we realize that happens to human life? Do we realize that happens to the life of the freaking soul? Like if you remove yourself completely from any environment, uh, kind of the refinement and that isolation inclines, you know, in Wendell Berry's observation to increase the opportunity simply for damage. And what you're gesturing towards here is incremental steps of engagement inside real ecosystems. It's funny that you talk about being green blind. The only plants that I can actually identify are the ones uh, that either my wife forages or that elk eat. Where I'm like, man, I can see, <laughs> I can spy fescue and wild fescue anywhere and know whether or not, you know, what, what, at what stage in its life it is and how it might taste if I were an elk. All other grasses I'm pretty indifferent to. I want to go specific a little bit. And on the food side and on the cooking side, if you, you're orienting someone to uh, engaging in cooking game birds and there's a couple things that you might give they don't have to be simple. They can be very complex. A couple things that would elevate or change a person's experience of cooking, specifically birds and eating them, what would be on your short list? Well, the first is to, is to pluck the bird. That goes without saying. And it's in, but I have to say it anyway, because a huge majority of upland game bird hunters will just skin all their birds. And, you know, I get it it's challenging to pluck those birds. They're, they're among the hardest birds to pluck, but I know how to do it. And I teach people how to do it in very great detail in my latest book. And it's not as hard as they think it is because the real short version is for like, if you're a quail hunter or a pheasant hunter or a grouse hunter, people pluck those birds at precisely the wrong moment. Uh, the worst time to pluck an upland bird is either the, the night after you shot it or the morning after you shot it. It's terrible. It's just a terrible, terrible idea because the bird's still in rigor and the feathers stick very hard and you're going to rip the skin and you're going to get frustrated and you're going to lose the skin. Well, why is the skin important? Well, for one, it's a it's an insurance policy against drying the meat out. And two, it's where all the character of the bird resides. So a domestic animal, like a pig or a cow, is such a couch potato that it can develop marbling. You will never see marbling in a deer or and you'll almost never see it in a wild pig and you'll never see it in a bird. So there's no internal fat. All of the fat is in the subcutaneous layer just underneath the skin. And so why does that matter? Well, you know, if you take a, a ruffed grouse or a pheasant, for example, and you skin it and cook it, it's basically a boring chicken. But when you add the skin in the fat that's underneath the skin, those birds take on their character and they give you really everything that is amazing about these birds. It's transcendent 
how different it is. And so the people who are like, well, you know, I don't want to spend the 20 minutes plucking those grouse. I'm like, you know what? Then I'm not saying don't hunt grouse, but I'm saying you're missing really 50% of the reason why you should be hunting grouse. So that's one is to pluck your birds. Another one is to consider separating your birds. Now, one of my things I hear a lot is, you know, turkey hunters. Oh man, those was wild turkeys. You can't eat them. And yeah, it's just, I just sigh, you know, like you really good, really. I mean, <laughs> so the problem with a wild turkey, and if you've ever had a, like a Gucci turkey, you know, like a really fancy heritage breed, like a bourbon red for Thanksgiving, basically what you, you know, you're dealing with is effectively a wild bird. So what that means is you can't cook it like a butterball from the supermarket because a butterball doesn't do anything for its life and it's double breasted. So you can get away with roasting those turkeys and we do every year. Well, if you do that with a wild bird, your breast meat might be fine, but your leg and thigh meat is going to be terrible. So if you break your birds down, especially larger birds, not necessarily small game birds, but, but like turkeys or pheasants or big grouse uh, and ducks and geese, if you properly cook the legs and the thighs separate from the breast, you can, uh, the whole bird is delicious. And that's a thing that a lot of people kind of miss. They want to cook that Norman Rockwell roast bird. And chances are that Norman Rockwell roast bird is going to be just a terrible disaster or one piece of it will be amazing. And the rest will be gross. So separating the birds is the other thing I would say beyond that we can, we can get into the, we get into the weeds, but if you remember those two things that you'll go a long way. Yeah, you're blowing my mind. This is the part where I confess to skinning all my grouse and <laughs> commiserating with turkey hunters on the difficulty of cooking the legs right. I'll Not that this is the point of the podcast, but when should you pluck your birds? What I do with everything from a grouse on down is I will, well, you get them as cool as you can, as fast as you can. And then once they're cold, well, I just stick them in a plastic bag in the fridge for three days. They'll be fine. Don't worry about it. They'll be fine. Uh, you know, and they're holing in the feathers. One fun tip, if you have children, make the faces face out so the kids can get a good scare and then not, not snack in between meals. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and but three days later, those feathers will, will come off a million times easier. Now, your other option is, is to pluck them like chickens. So if you've never plucked a chicken, have you guys plucked chickens? Well, uh, one rooster. <laughs> uh, so you probably so you haven't actually plucked chicken so when you pluck chickens you have a huge vat of hot water with a little detergent in it and then you you basically rubber overalls and you just go to town um wet plucking a chicken is the way to go because you typically are working with lots of lots of birds and it's a really good way to do upland game birds it's the the end result is not as nice as dry plucking but you can just wail through them and I go through the details in my latest book, but this suffice to say you, you do it one bird at a time and you keep dunking it for a few seconds until the feathers come loose. And then you work really fast and get that one bird plucked and then you move on to the next bird. But it's, you know, I could whack out six, eight, nine pheasants in an hour doing that. That is worth getting the full details from the book for, it sounds like. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> buck, buck, moose. On my short list of most recommended books, Large Game, it's where a lot of the action is. And obviously in that book, just so that our listeners who are kind of unfamiliar with the culinary world, unfamiliar with what these books are like, you go pretty deep into enzymatic aging and the difference between 
acid marinades and brining and all kinds of fascinating things like that. But same, so same question, because these things, you know, tend to apply across large animals. If you had to, you know, do a highlight reel of large game, cooking large game, give me that short list. Because also I want it for personal use. <laughs> well, I think the first tip is that uh, if you're going to shoot a wall hanger, you know, a big buck or a big bull, you, then you really owe it to yourself to get some sort of aging setup right. And it can just be, it can be as easy as a, a beer fridge in the garage. You don't need a walk-in cooler or anything. Um, and you only need to dry age cuts that you're going to serve rare or medium rare. There's zero reason to dry age a neck or a shank or a front shoulder. It just isn't. Now, if you shoot a big moose or a big elk and you want to make flat iron sticks or something out of the shoulder, that's different. But, but typically, you'll only need to age uh, backstrap and uh, the hind legs. That does not include the tenderloin. You should always take the tenderloin off and eat it, eat it pretty fresh because the problem with dry aging is you get a rind and the rind needs to be cut off. Let's say you're an elk hunter and you shoot a big old bull. You really, really want to age that backstrap. Well, if, if, I, if it was me, I would bring a saw into the field and just saw off that backstrap on the bone. So you saw it off the hip, right in front of the hip of the back hip, back uh, legs, and you saw through the ribs and you go all the way up to the end of the backstrap and then saw it off and then put that in your backpack and hike it back with the bone. And yeah, I know it's hotter, it's, it's heavier, but the thing is, if you're gonna dry age that and you have three sides of it on the bone, when you take it off the bone, you'll have so much less weight loss that it's profound and you, you only have that rind on the outside. So why bother doing that? Because the a bull elk or a, a buck deer that's not been aged, I've been talking about a real serious one, not, not, a, not a young animal, um, that's not been aged is going to be tough and unpleasant. I don't care what, it's just going to be like that compared to a younger animal or compared to you know a younger uh, doe or, or a cow. If you do dry age it, if you do go through that, and dry aging requires a couple of weeks at least, uh, three weeks is best, and two weeks is minimum. Then you're like, wow, this stuff is amazing. And it's, you know, the best moose I ever ate was a, a wall hanger moose that had been dry aged for three weeks. It was amazing. So getting a handle on what you're shooting in terms of how you're going to treat it on the table, that's important. Another one is uh, don't grind the shanks. Everybody grinds shanks and it's crazy. It's crazy talk because the shanks are going to ruin your grinder. They're full of connective tissue and you can use that connective tissue to your advantage. So whenever I shoot deer or elk, the front of the animal goes first, always. The neck, the shoulder, and the shanks all go first because those are cuts of meat that are way more interesting to eat. I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I, I get bored with backstrap. Backstraps, yeah, it's okay. But I'd much rather have a neck roast or shank because you cook it slow and low and we just talked about how wild animals don't have intramuscular fat well the front of all of these animals has lots of connective tissue and if you cook it as a braise or or slow and low or in a stew 
what happens is that connective tissue melts and it becomes slick and silky and it coats all of those different individual muscles. And it, this will happen with a hind leg too, but it's not as good because hind legs got lots of big muscles and not that much connective tissue. Whereas a shoulder or a neck or a shank have lots of little muscles and a lot of connective tissue. And the, the, the net effect of that, once it becomes tender, now, you know, it might take three or four hours to become tender, but it will, is that that melted connective tissue acts like fat. So you eat it and it tastes luxurious. It tastes smooth. It tastes rich. And it's not like you're adding fat. It's you're basically using what the animal is giving you in the, in the right way. And then so many people, they just don't know. I mean, you know, you, you, they're used to domesticated animals and you cook something for two hours and it's still hard as a rock. Well, they think it'll never get tender, but it absolutely will get tender. It just, everything will, it just takes time. So that's the, that's the, the third thing I would say is that if you're cooking a tough cut of meat, just give it time. It will always get tender. Yeah, I'm salivating over here, just so everybody knows, because I have seen this in action, and it works. The shanks, good lord. Can you just explain the simple dry-aging protocol? I think any hunter listening, and even the non-hunters who are curious about how food works, which fortunately, uh, Netflix shows like Chef's Table do show us that most people are really interested in the art and the craft that goes into food. So uh, the most antagonistic anti-hunter probably still interested in, what, in knowing how these processes develop sensational flavors. Dry aging, what do you mean? And let's say a hunter is listening and going, oh my gosh, I need to do that this year. And I have a beer fridge like I do in my garage for this very purpose. What do you do? Sure. So the easiest setup, I mean, obviously the ideal, ideal you'd have a walk-in and it would be set around 34, 35 degrees. That would be ideal. But most of us don't have that. So typically what you would do is you have your racks in a spare fridge. Uh, and I say spare fridge because you're going to leave a large piece of meat in the refrigerator for weeks and it's going to look ugly by the end of the end of this process. And most civilians are going to open that fridge and freak out. So it's kind of nice to have like a separate fridge to do it. You need a temperature just above freezing. So 34, 35, 36 is ideal. And you want to keep as much on the bone as you possibly can, because this is going to form a rind and that rind is going to get gnarly, like moldy and icky and gross. If you want to see what it looks like, go to a high-end steakhouse. And quite frankly, for reasons beyond me, they'd like to show off their dry aging meat, which looks disgusting because it has this outside ick on it that just once it's trimmed off, it's beautiful, but you trim it off. And so this is why you leave everything on the bone because it, the rind does not develop where the meat touches the bone. So you want a beer fridge and a beer fridge is ideal because you need air circulation. Well, a refrigerator is not going to have air circulation and you could put a little fan in there and it might work. Um, but you're going to keep changing the batteries all the time. It's just a pain in the ass. So if you do it in a beer fridge, well, what do you do with a beer fridge? You walk in and grab beer, right? So every day you're grabbing in, you open up the fridge to grab some beers out and that creates air airflow. So every day that fridge is getting an exchange of air as you open up that fridge. And if you feel like you want to, you just wave the door up, open and close a little bit. 
And then that gives you your airflow and your good temperature and you, and it's a rack, right? So set a, you know, set a baking sheet underneath the rack cause it's going to drip. And the process is enzymatic and the meat will dry out. The enzymes in the meat will break down connective tissue and make the meat first tender. And then we'll give you an increasing amount of kind of weird funk that at two weeks to three weeks, most people really, really like. Now you've heard of steaks aged, you know, 70 days or hundred days or whatever, whatever. And I've eaten them and they taste like blue cheese. And some people dig that and it's, it's, it, it's a thing. Uh, but most people really prefer a dry aged steak between two and three weeks. Um, you do have to have humidity in your fridge. Now, right at the beginning, you'll be fine because the meat itself will give off humidity that will be kept in the, uh, in the refrigerator. But ultimately, you might want to put a little pan of salted water. It keeps bacteria from growing. You, you won't, Otherwise, you'll like a weird bacteria farm. So that's it. That's really all it is. And then you just kind of let them hang there. And then you have to make a choice with dry aging. You either age before you freeze meat or you age after you freeze meat. Either works. You just can't do both. So you take a quarter, you put it in your beer fridge. Well, you don't take a full quarter. You take a, let's say you take a hind leg minus the shank. I was wondering, so no dry aging shanks because there's so little, the rind will make it not usable. Right. Rear quarter minus shank, all the muscles attached, set it on a rack, leave it two to three weeks, trim everything off, then butcher it as you normally would. Correct. All right. It's so good. We, we've got listeners that are going to want you to touch on this foraging aspect as well. Um, realizing that this is regional and that there's a ton there, what are like two or three things that either you wish you had eyes for, or you wish you had learned or thought about as you kind of took this walk in the woods? Oh gosh, I can't believe I just said that. Um, but yeah, the, the similar things for the folks out there that are super interested and have no idea the difference between anything they're going to see out there. Are you asking me what are the two or three things are, that are perfect for a beginning forager? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I would say number one, berries um, by far. And number one would be bramble fruits. So so blackberries, raspberries, dewberries, um, snowberries, salmon berries, every, there's not a single berry that has the structure of a blackberry or a raspberry. So in other words, that sort of, uh, it's that multiple cell droop kind of thing. And they're always on plants that have some sort of stickers. There's nothing that looks like a raspberry or blackberry that is toxic. So that's an easy one. So if it looks like a blackberry or raspberry, it may not be that, but it, it will not be toxic. So you'll be fine. Hmm. So that's one. And, and then the reward is pretty good too. You know, it's like, it's, if, you know, everybody likes berries. So another one would be morel mushrooms because morel mushrooms are among the easiest mushrooms to identify. And it, everywhere from the Great Plains to the East, they come up in the same place every year. Hmm. Uh, in the West, there are naturals that do that, but the majority of morels in the West are fire morels and they come up after fire. They're extraordinarily easy to, to identify. It's essentially a honeycomb on a stick. 
Hmm. Um, there's a false morel that looks like a brain on a stick, but if you want to pick morels, Google false morel and then Google morel and spend some time looking at it. It should take you 30 seconds to realize, oh yeah, one's a morel and one's not a morel. The only other thing that you can misidentify a morel as is a stink horn. And typically they're not toxic. They're just kind of weird. And they never come out at the same time as morels. A stink horn is a hot weather mushroom that you're seeing like now where a morel is a spring mushroom only. That's awesome. I know. Yeah. I, know. This is a, this is, I can attest that as a junior forager, morels are very easy to find if you know what you're looking for and it's springtime and there's been a fire, right. especially here where we live. Last area, because I know we're wa- winding down is... Sure. I was interested, you know, reading across some of your Atlantic articles, uh, some of your other work. There is a lot of engagement with sort of the basic pieces of just food and cooking. And looking across my kitchen, I'm thinking of an article that you wrote about salt and getting over the idea that salts don't taste different. This sort of was introduced to me through uh, trying to become a better ramen chef and Uh. recognizing how often multiple varieties of salt are called for to create real umami flavor in your broth. So like you read about salt, this is something that you can just kind of instant upgrade into your kitchen. What are the things that if you were to point out, you know, your short list of this isn't an animal or it could be, you're looking at a kitchen upgrades of the basic pieces that just elevate what a person is capable of making. What are some of those things? I, you know, I went down the rabbit hole with salt for a while and like everything that you go down the rabbit hole to, you know, canning or whatever you do everything and it's all amazing. This is all, this is fantastic. And then you, you scale back and you scale back and you scale back and you scale back until you finally realize, well, what, what really matters? And I would say if you want to do that, there are only a few things that really matter. Number one, use, you know, the boxes of kosher salt as your day-to-day salt. That's easy. Go to the, you know, most supermarkets have kind of an ethnic section. And, you know, amusingly, you'll find like this little Jewish section and you'll find diamond crystal kosher salt there. That particular cut of salt is what every chef uses in the United States, almost exclusively. They don't use the Morton's kosher salt. And I don't know exactly why, but that's just the way it is. So if you start using diamond crystal in the red box, that will get you started. In ter- and especially if you're looking at a chef cookbook and they call for X amount of salt in a volume measurement, they're using diamond crystal. It's a huge deal. So if you were to use the same volume measurement of Morton's versus diamond crystal, they don't weigh the same. So you'll have, you can oversalt your food if you don't use diamond crystal, if you're just using that. That's a little pro tip. Why do we use kosher salt? Kosher salt doesn't have any additives to it, and it's cut in such a way that, you, that a pinch of salt is easy to do. Try doing a pinch of salt, a very, very fine grain table salt. It won't work. So that's number one. Number two is, and this is personal, always have smoked salt available. You know, whatever your smoked salt of choice is, if you do a lot of fish, it should be smoked alder, you know, alder salt. If, if not, pick a, a fruit wood, you know, cherry or, or apple or something like that. Smoked salt is uh, one of the secrets of my kitchen. And 
when you do not have time to smoke food or, or put a smoky element in your food or barbecue, and you just want to put something and you want to get a little bit of extra smoky flavor, smoke salt is a winner. I mean, I've used lots of different kinds of smoke salt and there are differences for sure. Get a fine cut smoke salt because a, a, a very rough cut smoke salt, I've never really seen the use for it. So, you know, you want medium fine. You don't want big chunky salt when it's smoked. So another one would be um, a really good finishing salt. And, a, and you're going to have to play around with what floats your boat, but I really kind of settled on two. So there's Trapani salt and then there's Malden flake salt. So why do you use a finishing salt? You use a finishing salt at the very end of a dish because you want the texture of that salt. You want that crunch salt, crunch salt flavor in whatever it is that you're cooking. And it's not called for everywhere, but it's really nice uh, in a lot of dishes. And it's a kind of a neat way to, to add salt um, where you notice it. Because salt should never be noticed. It's, you know, it's like makeup. You know, makeup should never be, you should never notice that makeup's on. You should never notice that something's been salted. It should just taste of itself, except for a finishing salt. So the last piece would be, if you are ever going to cook something in a salt crust, which is a really amazing way to do things, I highly recommend you buy a big bag of that. It's called Cell Gris, G-R-I-S, so gray salt. And the reason why you need gray salt, whether it's made in the United States or, or France, which is where it's from, is because it has a higher moisture content than, like, say, the, the diamond crystal salt. And why does that matter? That matters because if you're going to salt crust a fish or salt crust a partridge or salt crust a, a chicken, which is a fantastic way. It's really, it's a beautiful way to like a date night or, um, or, you know, holiday meal or something like that to do that. It's just beautiful. You crack open the crust in front of everybody and the steam comes out. It's just gorgeous. But the problem is if you use regular diamond crystal, it's, it has so little moisture, it's going to suck all the moisture out of your food. Whereas a cell gris will not do that. And it is an absolute huge difference between that. And so the, everything else is really gravy. You know, you got those Hawaiian salts that are colored. That's because they have clay in them. And that's, that's nice. It's great. I mean, it's just visual. Uh, Himalayan pink salt. Everybody's like moons over that. It's just salt, man. It's just salt with an impurity. You can barely taste it. So a lot of that stuff is like, meh, you know, but there are, what I just described is really the, that's the stuff that matters. So good. Blowing my mind over here. Sam's mind is not easy to blow, just in case, in case you didn't know that. So that's, that's high praise. Hank, this has been a real treat and lots of fun to finally have an opportunity to have a conversation. The new book is the new-ish book. It's been out since April, mm-hmm. but it's a pheasant quail, cottontail, fantastic. Obviously, I already recommend Buck Buck Moose to everybody. Name of your website if people are, you know, want to dive into the article. The writing is great, and there's essays on a pretty wide range of topics. What's its name? It's Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and the easiest way to get to it is just to go to huntgathercook.com. And I'm all over social media as well. So I'm on Instagram as huntgathercook. Uh, I'm on Facebook quite a bit. Um, I do, I am on Twitter, but I don't spend a ton of time on Twitter. It's tend to be a toxic environment there, but, but, uh, IG, I spent a lot of time on. Awesome. Well, thank you, Hank. It's been a, a pleasure. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks a lot for, uh, for thinking of me. 